Welcome to the pulpit ministry of Christ Community Church in South Florida, aiming to make, mature, and multiply disciples by preaching and teaching God's Word based on the sufficiency of Scripture. And now, let's join Pastor Bernie Diaz for the message. I'm going to tell you about a courtroom story. This kind of summarize a courtroom story. Something that happened some years ago, uh, there was a frail black woman who kind of rose slowly to her feet in the courtroom. She was over 70 years old and facing across the room, there were several white security police officers, and one of whom was a Mr. Vanderbroek, and he had just been tried. He was found implicated in the murders of both this woman's son and her husband some years before that. And what he had done is he came to the woman's house took her son, shot him at point-blank range, and then set the young man's body on fire while he and his officers had a party nearby. And several years later, the man and his cohorts, they returned to take away her husband too. And for every two months, for many months, she heard nothing about him, his whereabouts. And then almost two years after her husband's disappearance, this Vanderbroke came back, took the woman herself, And she really remembered vividly that evening when she was taken because she went to a place beside the river where she was shown where her husband had been bound and beaten, but he was still still strong in spirit. He was lying on a pile of wood. And the last words that she heard from her husband's lips as the officers were pouring gasoline over his body and set him on fire were, Father, forgive them. And so the woman stood in there in that courtroom, and she listened to the confessions offered by this guy, Mr. Vanderbroek, and then a member of the South African Truth and Reconciliation Commission turned to her and said, so what do you want? What do you want to do here? How should justice be done to this man who has so brutally destroyed your family? She said, I want three things. First, I want to be taken to the place where my Husband's body was burned so that I can gather up the dust and give his remains a decent burial. And then she paused and she continued and said, My husband and my son were my only family. I want, secondly, therefore, for Mr. Vanderbroek to become my son. I would like for him to come twice a month to the ghetto, spend a day with me so that I can pour out on him whatever love I still have remaining to give. And finally, she said, I want a third thing. This is also the wish of my husband. So I would kindly ask someone to come to my side now and lead me across the courtroom so that I can take Mr. Vanderbroek in my arms and embrace him and let him know that he is truly forgiven. And as the court assistants came and they led the elderly woman across the room, Mr. Vanderbroek was so overwhelmed by that, he literally fainted. And as he did, those people in the courtroom, the family, the friends, neighbors, going victims, really, of decades of oppression and injustice. And they began to sing softly, but assuredly, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me, end quote. It's quite a story, isn't it? That woman, how does somebody do that? How do you do that? How does that happen? How can a person so hurt so victimized in such pain and suffering, such evil, how do they forgive somebody and radically love somebody like that? Could you do it? I don't know if I could. 
But what else could it be other than by God's grace? That has to come from a new heart and a new spirit in Christ. And you know what's really amazing about that story, as we're going to get into this study now? For you and me, that kind of story, that kind of attitude is supposed to be our constant way of life as Christians, as real born-again Christians. That's the big idea of this text before us that our brother just read, which is why I submit to you, as I texted you earlier this week, you're going to find this is one of the most challenging, difficult passages of Scripture to obey in all the Bible. doesn't get harder than Romans 12 right here. The Apostle Paul taught us, he taught us in Romans 12, how we're to live personally, first couple of verses of living worship, and then that was really an application of the new life God gave us in the first 11 chapters of this book, and then he taught us how to live in a faith community, right? We call that life in the body and serving one another with the grace gifts for the body, and then we looked at last time what love looks like in the body, And that all really covered everything from verse 3 to 13. But now we finally close this chapter by being reminded how we are to live in the world. There's 10 more commands here, exhortations. They're positive, they're negative. And this is what's amazing. It is how to live the normal yet radical Christian life. Let me repeat that idea. It is normal for you to live a radical life. And I preached on this about a year ago, different circumstances when we needed to hear it, that we have to live a radical life. In fact, I'm going to tell you something. If you don't live a radical life, the gospel doesn't make sense. Right? I mean, think about it. If your lives are not countercultural, if they're not antithetical to how the world lives and its values, what do you have to offer? How can you show and share Christ? How can people be attracted to what you have and how you live if you don't live differently than everybody else? And so what the radical life for a Christian might look like, really, I'll give you one one phrase, one scripture. You can hang your hat on. Galatians 5, Paul wrote, For if the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So we're going to really unpack that as you think about what really does love look like in the world. And our Lord's Sermon on the Mount, you know, he gave us a great understanding of that. And then probably two decades after that message, along comes Paul with Romans 12. And I'm breaking it down in two ways, this text. Number one is how we humbly bless the world's people. And then secondly, how we humbly make peace with the world. How you love the world, how you make peace with the world. And that's how you're going to see what radical love in the world really looks like. So let's look at verse 14 as we start this idea about how we humbly bless the world's people, because that's a command. Romans 12, 14, Paul writes, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. Positive command followed by a negative command. You're going to need to get this in the back of your mind the whole way through. Humility is the foundation of everything God is commanding us to do and to be in this passage. Humility. In blessing someone, you have to be humble. In fact, it's going to be easier to understand this if we work backwards here. Before you talk about blessing someone, even those who curse you, what does it mean to curse somebody? Have you cursed someone lately? It's not what you think. It's not always profane language. A curse back in that time would be wishing 
harm on somebody. Wishing that somebody suffer or go through evil, right? Might even go as far as to condemn somebody. What is the common curse you and I probably, those of us who didn't come to Christ until later in life, what was that curse that we used when we were dealing with somebody in conflict? Go to H-E double toothpicks, I think I heard out there. That was the hockey sticks. That was another way of saying it. That's precisely the kind of cursing God commands us not to do. But cursing that way is common sense to mankind. Think about it. Your flesh, your humanity. That's what makes this really hard, this command, because the world almost demands that you curse people that offend you and persecute you. In fact, we often do use sometimes profanities with that. You know, mankind tends to reverse the golden rule when he or she has been offended. In other words, if you hit me, I hit back. Spit on me, I spit back. Curse my name, name calling, I curse you back. Cut me off the road, I cut you off. Thankfully, I've never done that. I haven't cut anyone off, at least not deliberately, in a long time, but I was known to do that on more than one occasion way back when. And the other idea is hurt my family, I'll hurt yours. I mean, isn't that just fair? That is fair, right? Do unto others. Well, let me tell you, you're going to spend a lot of time cursing people if you take that attitude, because as some of you know, persecution is normal to the Christian life. Paul also wrote to Timothy, all who desire to live in godly in Christ will be persecuted. Now you say, wait a minute, isn't persecution of God's people and his ministers a sin? Isn't that evil? Didn't verse 9 tell us last week, Pastor Bernie, didn't you say we're supposed to hate what God hates? Doesn't God hate that? I mean, you are familiar with what's called the imprecatory psalms, right? Those are psalms where the author is really calling for disaster to strike God's enemies. Really? Psalm 139 says, Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those of you who rise up against you? I hate them with complete, complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Wow, that sounds like a curse, maybe. Psalm 137 sounds like that. Isn't that just righteous indignation, right? Righteous anger? Here's the difference. David's writing about a perfect and holy hatred of God's enemies and those that would defame or shame God's name. It's not about what's being done to David. It's not personal. He wasn't advocating the hatred of his personal enemies because you'll see later how he loved and he treated his enemy, Saul, who was out to kill him because he was jealous of him. I'll show you that. David knew that God's holy war against the enemies of Israel like the Canaanites that was God's war to wage. He took care of that because only he can execute justice properly. In fact, the Jews got so carried away with this thing that they made this mistake of, with the law of justice thinking personally they should take care of the eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. They had it wrong. But we're called to be radical, holy, which basically means different on this, aren't we? So Jesus said, no. Don't curse people to curse you. No. You know why? One of the reasons why? If you do that, what the world does, because you're going to turn persecution into revenge. 
which we're going to deal with here. So according to God, how do you respond to cursing? Bless someone. What does that mean? You said before to somebody, God bless you. Well, what you're doing is, that's the literal definition of the Greek word. You are wishing them well, wishing them happiness. In fact, it's a word that we get in English from the Greek, the word eulogy from. You've heard of giving a eulogy at a memorial service, a funeral? Well, what happens there? You speak well of that person that lived, and that's what that Greek word literally means, to speak well of somebody. Speak well of your enemy. Wish them peace, like the Hebrew word, shalom. When you say shalom to someone, you're basically saying, peace be with you, may things go well with you, and peace and prosperity. Same idea. Now, it's not just me. When was the last time you wished shalom or peace to somebody that cut you off the road? It's radical stuff, I told you. Our model, our mentor, Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Luke 6, he added in that recording of the sermon, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you, and to one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other one too. I think you've heard of that one before, right? That statement right there could almost sum up the entire passage and the message. Apostle Peter had some anger issues, conflict issues, didn't he? Well, after he came to the Lord, he echoed his Lord. He said, 1 Peter 3, 9, Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, which is really cursing language, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. That's really interesting. Peter said if you bless somebody instead of curse them, you get a blessing of grace from God. Now, you might say, okay, okay. I understand this so far, this, this, this radical, humanely impossible command to do, but how do I do it? Because I really can't stand my enemy. I really hate my enemy. And I get that. How do you love and serve an enemy? I like one practical way C.S. Lewis laid it out, in that your affections for somebody will grow, like loving your neighbor, the feelings will follow after you serve them or pray for them. He said this, the rule for all of us is perfectly simple. Do not waste time bothering whether you love your neighbor. Act as if you did. As soon as we do this, we find one of the great secrets. When you are behaving as if you love someone, you will presently come to love that person. End quote. That is very true. You know, that's a great way for a husband and wife to make up if they're quarreling, by the way. Same principle. Sometimes you don't love your spouse that particular day because of conflict, act like you do. Serve them, and the feelings often follow. Brotherly love follows agape love. So then the negative command goes to a positive one. Look at verse 15. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. I'm going to tell you what the hard part of that is, believe it or not, because you would think this is pretty obvious of what this means. I mean, most of us get the grieving, the mourning part. We do that well. This church is very good that way. Someone's hurting. We rally around them. We lay hands on them. They pray. We cry with them. We grieve with them. The rejoicing part, believe it or not, to be really humble in your rejoicing in your heart is more difficult, meaning really happy for a brother and sister in Christ who gets blessed in a way that you haven't been blessed. And jealousy and envy can kick in. Maybe it's something material. How do you feel when a brother or sister in Christ, or anyone you know for that matter, gets a job promotion and you've been just passed over? 
or they get that home that you've always wanted you don't have, or they just get that car that you think you really want and need and somebody else just got one, or everything's working out, it seems like, with their spouse and their kids at home and not quite for you. A life event. Think about it. Are you always ready to rejoice with that person? Say, God bless you. That's wonderful. I'm so happy for you. That's great. Harder than you think, isn't it? It's harder for the prodigal son's older brother, the good one. Luke chapter 15. This is the part of the prodigal story that's often not read. The reaction of the older son, who actually represents Israel, while the younger brother in redemption kind of represents Gentiles. It says in Luke 15, 25, you know, the son has come back, the prodigals come back, killed the fatted calf, right? The father's thrilled. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants, asked what these things meant. He said to him, your brothers come. Your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. So you would think, whoa, that's awesome. My brother's been found. Let's go to the party. What's his reaction? Did he rejoice? Verse 28, but he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated or begged him. But he answered his father, look, these many years I've served you and I never disobeyed your command. Kind of like, nah, 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 nah. You never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. In verse 32, the father said, it was fitting to celebrate and be glad. Rejoice. For this, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. But doesn't that hit home sometimes? Might just be as simple as that. That's sin. The attitude of that older brother, that's sin. It's not Christ-like. It's not the radical love God wants for his people. He wants 1 Corinthians 12, 26. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. How else can we humbly bless somebody? Go back to the text, verse 16. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Can't be haughty or conceited if you're going to be a radical lover of people. Living in harmony, that carries the idea that's echoed in Philippians of being like-minded. It's a striving for unity in the church when possible. That's what really connects well verses 15 and 16. It means as a Christian, living in harmony means you don't fight over every doctrine. Not everything is a hill to die on. And we know how to be gracious with people. Don't be haughty. Don't be conceited, right? Don't be haughty with people because of the things they've gone through in their life. I was reminded how we in the church sometimes, and I mean the universal church, can struggle to sit down in fellowship with Christians and non-Christians that have struggled with sins that, like, make us recoil. Oh, You know? I was meeting with a brother recently. Uh, he has a history of sexual sin, and he was telling me how he was looking for a new church. Elsewhere, he, was, he visited one. And some of the leaders looked at him like he was from Mars when he gave his testimony. It's kind of like, whoa. And they made him feel really, really uncomfortable. So much so that he decided not to be a part of that church. That's a spirit of legalism. That's what it means to be haughty, not humble. 
It's like, wow, you did that? I could never do that. I've never done that. That's why Paul's saying this was a pervasive attitude that had happened, I think, in the church in Corinth, where he's writing this from, to the church in Rome he had not yet been to. And Paul's probably like, been there, done that, I've seen this. Don't get here. Don't go there. That's not humble. If you're humbling yourself enough to live in harmony with somebody, you serve them, you love them regardless of whether they're believers or not, who they are, their sin status, whether they're rich, poor, popular, whatever, if you're really humble and not haughty, you'll be able to rejoice with them when that time comes, and you'll be able to weep with them when that time comes. All right? So seek to gain understanding with people. Ask questions. Listen to the lost people in your life. That's how we're humble. That's how we're blessing people. Find out what makes people tick. Because I got to tell you, that's what's going to inform your evangelism. You're going to be able to witness to people better when you know what they've been through. That's living in harmony with the world. So that's my first point of this text. We need to humbly, humbly love people and humbly bless people in the world. Here's my second point. Humbly make peace with the world's people. Make peace. That's verses 17 to 21. Because the rest of the passage here now narrows. Folk, really, a focus is on living peacefully, specifically with unbelievers. Look at verse 17. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. So that's all people. That's everyone. In and out of the church. And that kind of echoes verse 14 a little bit when it talked about blessing those people who curse you. And it's going to come up again in the beginning of verse 19. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. All right? Listen carefully. Again, you have to have a humble heart attitude to do this, to live a living, radical, loving Christian life. You have to be so totally surrendered to the Lord, walking with the Spirit, being filled with the Spirit, so that this humility of yours is just going to pour out of you naturally. Because i got to tell you, you cannot do these commands like a list of to-dos if you're not feeling it. If you're not feeling it, you're not going to do it. It's too hard. It rubs against your flesh too hard. That's why Paul had already kind of summarized this attitude earlier in the chapter. In the middle of verse 3, he said of Romans 12, we should not think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think, but to think with sober judgment. Look at yourself as how God looks at you. That's humility. Folks, humility kills pride. It's the remedy. It's the prescription that kills the disease of pride. Let me clarify this for you about humility. I'm not telling you to hate yourself, to crush yourself. Hate your sin, yes. Not yourself, per se. You're an image bearer in Christ. A better way to think about humility is this. Forget yourself. Forget yourself. Don't be thinking about yourself all the time. Don't think too much about what you want, your rights, in comparison to others. When you, when you reflect on yourself again, Think of how God looks at you, which is you are a wretched sinner saved only by his mercy and his grace. That should humble you a little bit, shouldn't it? And if not, read Philippians 2, 3 to 8 and meditate on that passage because that'll bring you a good deal of humility. Do what's honorable, that verse says, which simply means do what's right. What's right is to make peace with somebody instead of paying them back the evil done against you, right? 
That's where we get the positive command from in verse 18. We mention it a lot here, and in conflict resolution, verse 18 says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all, all people. That verse is simply about peacemaking. And what did Jesus say about Christians in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5? Blessed are the peacemaker. And he's happy are the peacemaker. To which you might say, let me get this straight. Someone offends me, insults me, slanders me, maliciously even. We're not to repay them, not to pay them back, just giving, us what, giving them what they gave us. I'm supposed to make peace with them, really? Yes, that's right. Repay carries the idea of vengeance. That's the problem, which is only about getting emotional satisfaction with revenge. Hollywood movies, you know, play this up all the time. This is a huge feature in Hollywood movies and television. I've seen these movies because they resonate with our flesh. I'm Batman. The equalizer. Taken back. What's the theme in all those movies? There's like four or five of them in a series. John Wick, 103. Someone kills his dog and he goes out and exacts retribution, carnage, torture, and murder of everyone. Getting them back. And we sop it up. We love that. Right? You know it. Nod your head. Right? The Punisher. Goes back to Charles Bronson. Death Wish. My goodness. You know why? Because some people think that's the only thing that can medicate us. And you know what? In real life, it doesn't work. You never feel better long term. It never satisfies. In fact, you see many of those same characters in these movies, and they're tortured for life afterward, even after exacting the revenge. They're never the same again. Verse 19, beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Paul's quoting Deuteronomy 32 there. And what it says is that God takes care of vengeance. This has always been his will, Old Testament, New Testament. We've said this before. God's anger, his wrath is perfectly holy and just, people. His retaliation, his punishment is best left to him when it comes with dealing with people personally because he knows how to do it, we don't. Now, I'm not talking about Romans 13, which we're going to start with next week, which gets into the role of government exacting justice. Justice is not payback or vengeance. There's a distinction there. God knows how to punish and judge people. He ordains governments to do that. We don't know how to do that well as fallen people. We go overboard. So it's God's prerogative for him to repay evil and avenge wrongdoings. It's not for us to do it. As Proverbs 20, verse 22 says, do not say I will repay evil. Wait for the Lord and he will deliver you. Just wait. In fact, instead, Jesus says in Luke 6, do good to those who hate you. That's the idea, the same idea of love, whether it's written in the Hebrew or the Greek. You shall love your neighbor. And you can only bless people or make peace with people that you are willing to love, including enemies. Now, I know this is incredibly radical, right? This is not human. It's not normal. 
because we often, ref, you know, we react to conflict with our mouths, first thing that comes out, which is why we have to know how to respond to conflict. There's three ways you can respond to conflict, and we've shared this before with you. Three ways. You can flee, you can fight, or you can forgive. Flee means conflict, not going to deal with it. I take off. Run. Fight is the usual. Somebody curses you, curse back. Hits you, hits back. And then there's forgive. Flee or fight. Escape or repay. That's what we normally do. Ken Sandy, who wrote that really good book, Peacemaker, said, quote, even if your opponent speaks maliciously against you or to you, do not respond in kind. Instead, make every effort to breathe grace only by what is true and helpful, speaking well of your opponent whenever possible and using kind and gracious language. Did you get that last part? Because that's what we talked about in the BRP today from Colossians 4. It's a big ask. I get it. We have to do it because our tongue is so dangerous. It can really cause wars between nations. Think about it. James 3 says the human tongue is like a bit or a bridle in a horse's mouth. It's like a rudder that steers a ship. Or it's like a flame to fire. You know what those three things have in common? They're all small. Small. Tongue's a powerful, small, little tool. And it can tear people down. You know it. You've been victims of it. And you've victimized people with it because a tongue can tear down churches. It can wreck a marriage. And it can devastate a family. We say things sometimes to the people closest to us that we would never say to a stranger. On the other hand, the tongue can build up. It has the power of life and death, according to Proverbs 18. And the Sermon on the Mount goes even a step further in this peacemaking, praying for people that persecute you, praying for their well-being. And when you think about that, this is involving the third response to conflict, which is forgiveness, forgiveness. I think about Stephen. Remember when he became the first martyr of the church, Acts 7? Being stoned to death in front of Saul for preaching the gospel. He's literally hated by dozens of people. He's being cursed for the faith. What does he say? Acts 7:60. Falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. What? Does that sound familiar? Have you heard something like that before, right? Jesus' prayer on the cross, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. By the way, that doesn't mean they didn't know what they were doing at the time. They know they were conspiring to murder Jesus. It really has the idea of they don't know the consequence of what is going to come to them for what they do. Martin Luther King said, love is the only thing that can turn an enemy into a friend. It's true. Doesn't always happen, but it can. And that's what God calls us to do. In fact, I would argue this forgiveness is the key to peacemaking. As I've said many times to couples that I've counseled, marital counseling, if you don't have a lifetime of forgiveness that you're ready to commit to in your life, in your married life, your marriage will not work. I guarantee it. A marriage cannot survive unforgiveness. Can't do it. And you think, really? All my life I'm going to be forgiving my spouse? Yes, and they're going to be forgiving you. Why? Because you're going to be sinning to each other the rest of your life in something you've said or done. It's not a matter of if. 
It's just how many times a day, how many times a week, love covers a multitude of sins. Most of them you've got to be willing to overlook. You've got to be able to forgive even enemies with the Lord. And we can't wait for them to do it. We have to initiate it. In order, in order to get that monkey off our back of bitterness and pain, you've got to be willing to make peace, even if people don't want any part of it. And I get that. And again, no worries. The beautiful thing, if you go back to verse 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Paul's got a qualifier in there. Paul's saying, look, not everyone's going to want to make peace with you. Even if you initiate and come to them, you ask for forgiveness, you talk it out, and they say, I don't think so. Fine. That's on them. That's between them and God. We are responsible to do all we can, make every effort we can to make peace. You can't be anybody's Holy Spirit. So you leave the rest to God. That's what that South African woman did, didn't she, in the story in the introduction I gave you. If you're merciful like that, like God is, if you're kind, compassionate, merciful, tender-hearted, forgiving, you are like God. We are more like God when we forgive somebody who doesn't deserve it than any other time. That's when you are most Christ-like, I believe, when you and I forgive an undeserving person. I'm not talking about reconciling a relationship. That has to involve confession of sin, repentance. I'm talking about forgiveness, which literally means canceling a debt in your heart, putting aside, it literally had the idea as a metaphor, divorcing yourself from something, divorcing yourself from something owed to you. And you're willing to do that vertically with God to that person, even if they don't come to the table. That's why it's been said Christians are the most forgiven people in the world. Therefore, we should be the most forgiving people in the world. That makes sense, doesn't it? So, another wise, humble way to make peace in really interesting words along this line is verse 20. Look at it. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. When's the last time you heaped burning coals on somebody's head? No one should have their hand up because none of you knows what that means, even. Some of you do. It's a tough metaphor. It's an ancient metaphor. And it's a quote that comes from verse 25. It's also kind of echoed in the Sermon on the Mount. Remember the agape love part of loving your neighbor? We said that it's about meeting needs. Meeting needs is how you love a neighbor. You're not going to hate a neighbor if you're loving them. And what does it say in that verse again? If he's hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. That's the burning coals. Because there's an old analogy here I'll explain to you. One of the oldest explanations for that was that in ancient times, armies would use coals to fight off attackers so that the soldiers who were on the other side couldn't resist that for very long. That's not really what it means. Another definition was you would give a person coals so they could light a fire and you'd put it in a pan to carry home and they would carry it home on their head. That's a little closer. It was a neighborly act, right? Made friends. It's about making friends, not enemies. I think the best interpretation historically for putting coals on somebody's head was to shame them with kindness. Shame them with kindness. It's a picture of causing, at that time, it was a picture of causing an enemy enough shame to bring them to repentance. 
to a change. So that negative command of verse 19, which says not to avenge yourself because the Lord will take care of it, that's the counterpoint to this positive command in verse 20, which is you meet the needs as best as you can of people that hate you or are hostile to you. There's a secular proverb of wisdom you've heard about before. You've probably used it when someone's in this situation with you and you say, I'm going to kill them with kindness, right? It's the same idea. It means that you want to behave in such a way as to bring a conviction of conscience to that person cursing you, offending you, with a Christ-like, spirit-filled, radical response to evil. Like the great old scholar F.F. Bruce said, best way to get rid of an enemy is to turn him into a friend. Give you a picture of that. David, King David, he refused when he had opportunity, and good reason maybe, to kill Saul who was trying to kill him. Right? God delivered Saul into David's hands on more than one occasion. David could have exacted the revenge. Saul was persecuting him, was cursing him, chasing him down to kill him. David even had him cornered in a cave on one occasion as uh, Samuel was going to the bathroom. He even cut a corner of his tunic. David cut a corner off of the tunic off of Saul, left it there in a corner of the cave. Look at how that went down, 1 Samuel 24. I'll just give you a couple of tidbits. Verse 10, David says to Saul, afterwards, Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave, and some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, small l, master, for he is the Lord's anointed. Verse 12, May the Lord judge between me and you, May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. That's Romans 12. That's David talking Sermon on the Mount. Saul's response, verse 17 of that chapter, he said to David, you are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. It's just Romans 12 talk. Sermon on the Mount talk. David did it hundreds of years in advance. I had every reason to take this guy out. Revenge is of the Lord, not me. God does it better. God does it right. He's the Lord's anointed king of this nation right now. I'm not going to do it. All that lead. That's the coal on the head. He put the coal all over Saul's head, which leads to verse 21 which really summarizes the whole message and this whole chapter, the whole idea of a radical Christian life marked by love. Romans 12, 21. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. No middle way there, no plan B there. If you and I curse people, verse 14, we repay evil for evil, verse 17. If we take revenge, verse 19, then you are being overcome with evil when you do that. Evil's beating you. It's just going to kill your soul. It's going to leave you miserable. It really is. But rather, if prayerfully, by God's grace, you seek to be truly humble, 
and bless other people and make peace, then you're the one that has the victory. You can overcome. You can beat evil. You can rejoice with God. You can lead others to Christ because of your radical, loving example. Again, this has to happen inside out, people, because that's our faith. We can only love this way because God loved us first and made us this way. We love God because he loved us first. We love people because we love God. If you don't love God, you don't love people. And if you don't love people, you really don't love God. Not as you should. So as I close, I just mentioned, the way to do this radical love is to be what? In one word, we said it often today, humble. If you're humble, you can humbly bless and make peace with people in the world. Where does that humility come from, though? Because it's supernatural. It comes from faith. You have to have faith in Jesus Christ in order to be humbly acting this way. You know why I say that? Another preacher brought this out, really made an impact on me when I heard it. An atheist can be humble in a worldly way. An atheist, an unbeliever, can have a low opinion of themselves and focus on other people constantly, and they will look humble in a superficial way to the world. But you know what? They still have a heart of pride. They still have a heart of pride. Why? Because their heart won't acknowledge God, won't honor God, won't thank God for anything, Romans 1, and that's pride. That's not humility. It's not real humility. It's not biblical gospel humility. Humility is ultimately the antidote for pride because pride can be the sin of rebellion towards your creator. Humility starts with humbling yourself to come to God and Christ and ask for his forgiveness. You know, the religious person has to humble themselves to come to Christ. If you come to, if you come to the table, you come to the Lord's table, or you come to God and say, like the tax collector of Luke 18, and if you say, or that's the publican, and if he comes and says, Lord, I haven't done that sin, I haven't done that sin, I'm pretty good, I'm better than most, um, I guess you should save me, right? Uh, and, you know, so I believe in Jesus, what he did on the cross. There's no humility there. There's no repentant faith there. That's not real humility. So how are they going to love other people like this in a radical way if they can't even humble themselves to be saved? But I love that analogy in Luke 18. The taxpayer, the one who had committed the worst sin in the community, extorting money from his own people to give to the Roman Empire, he's the one that looks up, he can't even look up to heaven, and he beats his breast and says, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's humility. That's repentant faith. That gets you in the kingdom. And that enables you then to radically love your enemies. See how it works? Inside out, starting with saving faith in Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we ask on behalf of those who have come in with hearts today with unforgiveness, bitterness on their hearts, Lord, making it hard, if not impossible, for them right now to radically, normally love their enemies as themselves. I pray that you would soften their hearts. The Holy Spirit would plow that fallow ground. You would work in their hearts and convict them 
in their conscience deep down that they would confess that and want to repent and come to you asking for forgiveness of that, that sanctifying gospel grace that you would give them and enable them to forgive their enemies, many of them that could be their loved ones. And Lord God, for those that have not even come to Jesus yet, they're rebels with you right now. They're enemies of you, whether they think they're humble to other people in the community or not, it doesn't matter. They haven't humbled themselves to you, the one that it matters most. They have not been glorifying you or honoring you or thanking you with their lives and lips. And I pray someone in this room today, today will be the day of salvation for them. Today will be the day that they turn to you and trust in Jesus alone for salvation because Jesus died on that cross and paid to forgive them of their sins if they would just believe in their whole heart and submit to you, to your authority as Lord and Savior. Lord, I pray that you would make that move in someone's heart today, Lord, and someone would come to Christ today as a result of this message. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for what you're doing with and through us today. Help us, Lord, going forward, those of us in Christ, again, to recommit ourselves to not repaying evil for evil, but overcome it with good, to love our neighbors, to bless those who curse us, Lord and to not be haughty, but to be humble, and to live peaceably with all as much as it depends on us. Help us to humbly bless and make peace with others today in a new, fresh way. We pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. Christ Community Church is a God-glorifying, Christ-exalting, and Bible-centered body of believers who love God and love people by making disciples of Jesus Christ. For more information on our ministry, please visit our website at www.christcomchurch.org. That's christcomchurch.org. 